Hello and welcome to episode 58 of Foreign Correspondence, a podcast that brings you interviews with journalists around the world. I'm Jake Spring, a foreign correspondent with 10 years experience in Brazil and China. Man, where to even start with this episode's interview? I spoke to Mitch Moxley, a longtime freelance journalist who I first met in China. He now works for Penta, a luxury lifestyle quarterly magazine that is affiliated with the financial publication Barron's. But you'll notice that I didn't even put that in the title. It just didn't seem to do the episode justice. Mitch is another case of a journalist who has really had some huge ups and downs. He wrote a feature for the Atlantic magazine about being a foreign business stooge in China, which is basically when a Chinese company hires a foreigner for show, thinking it will confer prestige on the company to show that it has foreign employees. That piece goes viral, and it puts a series of wild events in motion. He gets a book deal. At one point, it might become the basis of a Hollywood movie. In the end, it doesn't work out. But hearing his experiences, I really feel like I learned a lot about a side of journalism I don't know much about. The world of writing books, the world of getting your story optioned to become a movie or a TV show, and the world of being a freelancer with an extremely tenuous financial existence where it is almost impossible to make ends meet, and in all that time, maintaining an outward appearance of success. Mitch picks himself back up and starts over in New York, and at one point becomes the top editor at Maxim Magazine. He works with Anthony Bourdain at the publication Roads and Kingdoms, where he writes several stories endorsed by Bourdain. He talks about going to North Korea to write a story on the North Korean Film Festival for the magazine GQ and a battle with Vanity Fair for exclusivity. I'm already out of breath listening all that, and that's not even everything. You'll notice that this is a particularly long episode, but I think it merits it. Mitch and I spoke for three hours about his life and career. Of course, I cut it down, but in addition to this main interview, I have spun off another bonus content episode. Look for that in two weeks' time. It will really be a must-listen for anyone who wants to know how the industry of nonfiction books works and how the entire magazine industry is being reshaped by the desire to chase stories that could be optioned by Hollywood. He gives the best description I've ever heard of freelance finances and why it is so hard for freelancers to make a living at it. Okay, why wait two weeks for a bonus episode when often I put them out the next day? Well, as of tomorrow, I'm going on vacation for three weeks, and then after that, I'll be covering the UN Climate Summit for two weeks at the beginning of November. In the past, I've had work trips and month-long vacations even, and still kept the show going on its regular release schedule. But the God's honest truth is I'm so extremely burned out. I'm exhausted, more than I've ever been in my career, and I really just need to take a real break. It's something to do with the pandemic and how I used to have such a big life outside of work. But I'm basically in my apartment in Brasilia working more than I've ever worked in my life since the beginning of the pandemic. And unlike other places where the pandemic briefly receded for some periods and life got back to somewhat normal, that never really happened in Brazil. Hopefully it will soon, but not yet. During all this time stuck in my apartment, the podcast has been tremendously good for me in that it keeps me talking to people and gives me a lot of fresh ideas but it is also very time-consuming to produce each episode. Honestly, I look at the 58 episodes I've done every two weeks, and I'm amazed I was able to keep it going that long. Anyway, maybe I'm being overly dramatic, since this is not goodbye, just a break. I'm going to go on vacation and really check out from work and recharge. You'll see the bonus content for Mitch in two weeks, which in my opinion is as rich as a full episode, and then I'll be back in late November with a new interview. In the meantime, if you're missing the show, please do go check out the back catalog. There really are some amazing stories in every episode, and it's worth checking out some of the early episodes if you haven't. 
Last, I just want to mention in the discussion of Anthony Bourdain, who inspired a play that Mitch wrote, we do talk quite a bit about his suicide. So this is just a trigger warning. If you're sensitive to that, and rightly so, maybe it's best to avoid this episode. So there you have it. A long intro for a long episode, but a good one. Here's my conversation with Mitch Moxley, a magazine editor and freelance writer based in New York City. So to start, I just want to say thanks so much for coming on the podcast, Mitch. Yeah, my pleasure, Jake. Glad to do it. And to warm up a little bit, if you could set the scene for us and tell us a little bit about where you are, both uh, geographically and the physical space around you, and also a little bit about what your past week at work has been like. Well, I'm in my apartment in Brooklyn, near the, the Navy Yards in Clinton Hill, and I've been working from home for you know since the beginning of the pandemic from my kitchen table here. And uh, it was one of these things where I, I moved from a much smaller place into a larger place because I was feeling kind of claustrophobic as soon as I had to start working from home and got enticed by uh, several months free rent. And then now I'm going to have to move out promptly into a more affordable place. Uh, but it's been nice to have space as I've been working from here. And then uh, in terms of my, my last week with work, so my full-time job is I'm an editor at Penta Magazine which is a lifestyle publication that's distributed with Barron's, mm-hmm. um, the financial newspaper. And so we cover all sorts of lifestyle things ranging from travel to art and, you know, the auction world, philanthropy, and other sort of like high-end interests of wealthy readers that subscribe to Barron's. And so my general work week is, you know, I'm working from here. We're not going back into the office um, I'm not sure exactly when, but in September, it's going to be a voluntary move back to the office. But I think I'm going to continue to work from home because I like the flexibility. And then, so, you know, we have meetings. I'm editing stories. I'm working with freelancers and working with our staff writers. And then in my free time, every week, I, you know, devote some time to either writing or researching, working on freelance assignments, coming up with story ideas, writing pitches, and when I have an assignment, you know, I'll, I'll work on that sometimes in the evenings. And so that's a pretty standard week for me. Cool. And then, yeah, we'll get back to your uh, more recent career later on in the interview. But for now, we're going to go way back to the beginning. You know, a big point of the podcast is to kind of show people how they get to where they are in the journalism industry and we start way, way back at the beginning. So if you could just tell us where you were born, a little bit about what growing up was like, and if anything planted the seed of interest in journalism or, or writing or anything that you do now early on. Sure thing. Well, I was born in Saskatchewan, Canada, in a little town called Larange, which is like fairly north in the province. It was you know, a town of maybe 4,000 people. And my parents had met there. My dad was a judge and my mom worked for the government at the time. And so I was born there and it was a pretty fun place to be a kid because it was kind of just like an outdoor wonderland. Like we were surrounded by forest and lakes. And if you went much farther north in Larange, the road stopped. So you had to fly to all these remote communities if you were going to go there. And because my dad was a judge, he would do court in a lot of these northern towns, like way up by like the border of the Northwest Territories. And so sometimes when I was a kid, 
I would go with him on these trips and you'd get on these small planes and they'd have like the defense lawyer and the prosecutor and the the bailiff and the court transcriber <laughs> and the judge all crowded onto this small little propeller plane and then they'd fly up and you'd land with floats on the lake, you know, go to the little town and do court for the day and then pick up and fly to the next town. When I was younger, I didn't really, even in my, you know, 20s and 20s or so, like I didn't think about how formative those experiences were, but I think, I really think they were in terms of just like, you know, appreciating and developing a sort of lust for adventure because it was, you know, a, a, it felt like a very much like a frontier town uh, growing up. And then uh, when I was seven or so, we moved to Regina, which is the capital of Saskatchewan. You know, it's still a small city by American standards, but it was, you know, it was a proper city, about 200,000 people. And I would still, because my dad stayed in LaRange to work for several years, so I would still go back there quite a bit. But my parents were pretty, they were pretty adventurous. And so we would, you know, we did a lot of travel when I was young, like, you know, went to Mexico and my dad and I went to Europe and rented a car and traveled around. He was an amateur pilot. So I remember one trip that we did, we flew in his small plane to Toronto and then Montreal, like, you know, stopping every few hours. When I was young, I was really fortunate being able to sort of travel like that with my parents. And I think that was sort of how I got interested in the idea of journalism as a profession, because I remember thinking about it even when I was in high school sort of attracted to the idea of being able to combine travel with writing, which I also really enjoyed when I was young. I was one of these kids that when in English class, when you got to write a story, I would write like 40 pages by hand of some like, <laughs> you know, sci-fi sort of thing. And one moment that has always kind of stood out is when I was in one English class, when I was, I would say, I don't know, 15 or so, 14, 15, we had to write a biography and when the assignments were coming back, an English teacher handed back and said, like, you know, this is really excellent. Like, you're a really good writer. And I was just, I never even thought about it, whether I was a, a good writer or not until that moment. And, it, you know, I really loved writing. I loved to be able to escape through writing. And I was really passionate, I think, just about, like, storytelling in general. When I was young, I did a lot of acting and theater stuff. I was obsessed with movies. And, you know, my brother and I used to sometimes make movies so I, I think even when I was young, I wanted to be some kind of storyteller. And as I got a little older, journalism seemed the most practical of those. Sure. And, you know, I'd, I'd always get really excited about, like, movies with journalists and things like that. So, And my first experience with journalism was when I was in my last year of high school, we had this work experience class where you could get, like, real-life job training. And so one of the ones that I chose was to work for a month or so. I can't remember how long it was, but at this uh, small town free press. Or it was called the Regina Free Press. Mm -hmm. And I would go in there one day a week and, you know, instead of being in school. And I got to hang out with, I think they had like really, I'm not even kidding, like one reporter on staff, maybe two. And he was a younger guy. Like I, he was probably around 30, I would guess. And I just had a blast with him. Like I would go out during the day with him to work on his stories. And I got to write a couple myself. I was really into sports. So I wrote a story about the high school basketball scene and mm -hmm. wrote a story about like golf courses and stuff like that. So it was super exciting to be, I was 17 or 18, being able to actually write and have my name appear in the paper. 
Um, and then I, yeah, they, actually, I was not, I was visiting my folks not too long ago, and I found a clipping of this newspaper. And there was this one day where they're doing a story on. They're called VLT machines, like these machines where you like you put in money. It's kind of like hmm. they're sort of like slot machines, but a little different. And I I was on the cover like playing one of these machines, and I I'd totally <laughs> forgotten about this. But they like staged the, the cover so because nobody was in the bar or whatever wherever it was that we went to. So they put me in front of it and uh, had me play for a bit, and then I was on the front page of that paper. That's funny. <laughs> um, yeah. So then uh, I kind of had determined then that I wanted to be. I wanted to go into journalism, and when I did my undergrad, after a couple of years of school, I started volunteering at the uh, university newspaper, which was a blast. And because you know, at those university papers, you can kind of do whatever. Like we were writing news stories, we were writing features, we were writing like comic pieces and opinion pieces and things like that. And my last year there, I was the news editor, and so you know, really involved in putting together this. We, it was really more of a magazine, really, like a weekly magazine. Yeah, so that's kind of, that, that was my early. This was, in univers- this was in Saskatchewan. I went to University of Saskatchewan for my undergrad. And then from there, I applied to do a master's at the University of Western Ontario in journalism. Your undergrad was in, uh, was in what? I studied history and political studies for my undergrad. And was, this was also in Regina? That's actually in Saskatoon, which is a city about three hours from Regina. And this is a little sidebar, but I lived in a, in a house there. It was my grandfather owned it, then my dad owned it. And it was a pretty small house. It, was, it looked like a little Smurf house, but it was in like a pretty upscale neighborhood because <laughs> these larger houses had, had emerged around it. And I was living there with two friends of mine. And every year at the beginning of the school year, we would have a party, like a beginning of the year party sort of thing. And initially, it was just friends of mine from high school that drove up, and we would be like, you know, 10 or 20 of us or whatever. And then the second year, a little bigger. And then as the years went on, they got, you know, quite a bit bigger. By the time the last year we were there, this party just got like completely out of control. And the police came, they couldn't clear everybody out, so they brought. Uh, the fire department, and then the fire department started hosing down. Like, I'm not, I'm not, there were hundreds and hundreds of kids gathered outside this place. And then the TV uh, studios, I guess, caught wind of this, so they sent trucks there with cameras, and this all got caught <laughs> on film. And a newspaper reporter showed up, and I spoke to him about what was going on, you know, just saying, like, you know, we didn't invite these people, blah, 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 we're trying to clear people out, it's not working. Anyway, this became like a huge story in Saskatchewan because, you know, the fact that my dad was a judge and it was on this uh, like, posh street. Um, but it also, you know, this was like a, a good lesson for journalism because the coverage of it was just like wildly incorrect. Like my roommates and I were portrayed as just these like Van Wilder, you know, party animals, which just wasn't true. Like we all were honor roll students. They played uh collegiate sports like I was the editor of the student newspaper like we like to party but we were overall pretty responsible kids and it was like a, a bit of a crash course in how the media works and how you know the kind of rush to judgments and the way things get mischaracterized and how certain details that are incorrect quickly become established fact anyway that experience really stuck with me as I got older and kind of went into journalism 
Sure. Yeah. Wow. A lot of formative experiences in there. Yeah. I mean, that stuff about the, you know, getting on those small planes and going to the middle of nowhere for these court cases sounds like a story in and of itself. Oh, yeah, totally. All very interesting. So so then you go off to Ontario for the master's degree, and that's in journalism. And then I, I guess what happens from there? Do you I, – I don't actually know your chronology very well if you go straight from that to China or if there's something in between. Yeah, yeah. Sure. Well, a couple, a couple things happened in my master's. One is that I realized that what I was really into was uh, magazines. We had a magazine class where we learned how to write like a magazine pitch. We kind of talked about what a magazine story is. We read some of the great magazine pieces. And I enjoyed journalism school. But like a lot of people who have been through journalism school will say, you learn a, a ton more when you're actually out doing the reporting. But that one class was super useful. Like I still use the same kind of tools for writing a pitch now that I learned in that class. We had to do a magazine assignment for that class, and I did a story on autoerotic asphyxiation, weirdly. And one of the worldwide experts in that was a professor at a university in Hamilton. And so he, I kind of did a profile on him. And it won like an award at the end of the year. So I was like, that was really, for me, I was just like, yeah, this is what I want to do. Like the news, the news stuff kind of drove me crazy. Like I didn't really like going out, you know, and trying to turn around a story in a day. And I hated go, like, just like walking up to people cold and trying to get quotes. I did some shifts at the, this is in London, Ontario. We would do some shifts at the paper and I got some freelances pieces in the local paper too, which was exciting. But yeah, I just didn't really love the news cycle. It just wasn't, wasn't for me. I liked being able to take my time and meet people in person and sit down with them for hours, that kind of thing. But so that was one really important thing that happened. And then the other thing is that I got the idea when I was there. We had this one uh, night where they had all these local reporters come and talk to us. We met at a bar and then some like veteran reporters from the paper came and somebody from like the TV network came and they talked Mm -hmm. about their jobs. And I remember there's this one guy I would guess he was in his 50s, like mid-ish career. And he was one of the last people to speak. And he got up and he started just like talking about the state of journalism. And I don't know if he was talking broadly or specifically about Canadian or local or whatever. But he said, he's like, I have to be honest with you. I don't have a lot of hope for your careers. He's like, the trends are, are negative. It can be a low-paying job. There's not much security and it's a really hard environment, and I think you, somebody needs to tell you that. And, you know, I, th- I think everybody was a little jarred by this because we're towards the end of a, of a master's program in this field that we were all excited to start. But one thing that stuck with me is that I started to think, like, to be successful in this, you really need to get experience at, like, a well-known place. And the message that we were getting from our instructors was the opposite, which is that you should start small, like go to a small town paper, like go to a weekly or an alt weekly or something like that. Right. And I just like, I thought that that didn't make any sense because what they're going to be looking at on resumes or what's going to like help being able to pitch stories and things like that isn't if you worked at some small town weekly, but if you worked at a national newspaper or at the CBC in Canada or something. So when our internship came around, we could put three choices. I put the two national newspapers in Canada. One was the Globe and Mail and one was the National Post and then the CBC. 
and hoped that I could get placed there. And uh, only a few other people in our program did that, and we all ended up getting pretty good internships. I got mine at the National Post, which was like a fairly new, I don't know, it was like 10 or 15 years old at the time, national paper. And mine was in the business section. And that was only for a month, but then I got offered the summer internship, which is going to be four months, which I did after I graduated. In, this is in Toronto now. And then from there, I got offered a one-year job, which I decided I really wanted to go abroad. Like I'd already in my head thought at some point I'm going to go abroad. I'm going to try to freelance or do whatever, like teach English, something like that. But when I got the offer, it just seemed like dumb to turn it down. It, you know, I was 23, 20, or I was 24, I guess. I needed to get some kind of experience. I still, in my mind, wanted to break into magazine writing. So I took the job, and I was a business reporter in their business section. I actually wrote an investing column, which was bizarre because I was 24. <laughs> I had no investments. I didn't know what the hell I was doing, but I just was pretty good at taking these research reports and then making them like digestible and easy to read. But while I was there, I also like I got a couple like front page stories in the newspaper. I went to Japan for a couple weeks and visited a friend and then wrote like a, a really fun travel piece for the newspaper. And then I also wrote like a little small thing for another magazine. And I wrote, there was all these like different sections in the paper that I could write for. There was a business magazine. So I actually was like, looking back on it now, it was, it was a very useful experience to learn the kind of tools and tricks of reporting, but then also to get out of just like the hard news, like daily thing. I, I, I managed to write a lot of pieces that were in more of like a magazine voice and in that kind of featurey style, which was really helpful later on. And then towards the end of that year, I just like couldn't do it anymore. I didn't want to be a business reporter. I didn't want to be a daily reporter. And I really was itching to get out and travel and go abroad. And so towards the end of that year, I decided that I was going to go back to Japan where I had a friend living. And then from Japan, use Japan as a base to do some trips elsewhere. And so I found this story in Vietnam about a village that treated victims of Agent Orange. And it, some of them were former soldiers. There were other people who got cancer from drinking contaminated milk or water, whatever it was. And then their children who had Down syndrome and other disabilities lived in this village. And so I pitched it to this magazine called Maisonneuve from Montreal. And they took it. And it was, I, I, it was a tiny amount of money. It was like 500 bucks or something like that. But I didn't care at this point. I just thought, like, this is my first chance to write, like, a real magazine feature. I was only 25. Sure. Yeah, I, got, I, was just, I, never, I was so excited to, like, go to Vietnam and, you know, do something like that. So I sold my car, and I had some money saved up from the year at the paper. And, uh, yeah, I just left. I got out of my apartment, went to Japan first, and then went to Vietnam for a month. And then I also found this friend of mine from high school, his brother had gone to Manila and had become this like famous model in Manila. <laughs> and so I pitched that to this men's magazine at the time called Toro, which was like a Canadian version of GQ sort of. And they took that. So that was like my next assignment. Then I went to the Philippines and like partied with this guy for a couple of weeks and wrote this profile of him. So it was super fun for the first four months because it was just terribly exciting to be able to do these stories abroad, to have these adventures. But the reality was like, I was barely 
getting paid for these. Like I was hemorrhaging money in Japan, had no other source of income, made collectively like $2,000 or something from my freelance efforts. And was also having to pay for travel myself. Right. So after six months, I kind of hit a wall and um, got a little kind of depressed. It was winter in Japan. Like I couldn't think of anything to do. Weirdly, you think that in Japan you just get off the plane and somebody's offering you an English teaching job, but I actually found that wasn't the case. Like I applied for, a, like half-heartedly applied for some English teaching jobs, but didn't get any. And I had a girlfriend in Canada, and that was kind of falling apart. So eventually, after six months, I just uh, pulled the cord and went went back to uh, Canada. Oh wow! And yeah. So I, I, you know, in my in my original plan, I was only going to stay for six months to a year anyway. So you know, I stayed for six months, but it was it, it felt like a failure for me. Like I really wanted to be a kind of freelancer abroad, and it was you know I it, I was really kind of disappointed with you know how uh, how it ended. It was one of these weird things and like a real lesson about how freelancing works where I came back and it, when I, as I came back, it timed with these two stories coming out, the, the Vietnam thing and the guy in the Philippines. And so like to peers, like people, you know, it's not like these were famous stories in the New York times or anything, but like a lot of my peers read them. And so for them, they go, it looks pretty cool that I'd gone there and done these features. And most of them were still like trying to find their footing in journalism but, you know, like I said, the reality was way different. And this, like, this, I mean, is definitely, I think, the experience of a lot of people who freelance, where outwardly it looks like it's really fun life and you can have the appearance of success because your name's in a publication. But the reality of it is just much more challenging and kind of painful and, the, you know, the financial turmoil of it. So I was I was back in Toronto, and then for a year I freelanced. I mostly was doing work for the National Post, writing features for their weekend section. I did some kind of freelance PR stuff, uh, and then wherever else I could find work. Mm-hmm. And it really wasn't what I wanted to do. Like I didn't I didn't love Toronto, and wasn't making enough money to do it. And I really felt like I still like didn't finish what I started abroad. And so after, I don't know, eight, eight or ten months, something like that, I started looking around again for opportunities somewhere abroad. So I ended up applying for jobs in, I think I applied for a couple of places in Africa. I was in the middle of applying to a, another master's program at the London School of Economics. And I also found quite a few jobs in Beijing. One was at this place called Beijing Review, which was mm-hmm. a kind of magazine and then the other was at China Daily, uh, which is a state-owned English language national paper in China. And they were recruiting like crazy. Like there was a lot of advertisements for jobs. I found mine on this place called journalismjobs.com. I don't know whether it exists or not anymore or not. Barely. Um, <laughs> I did go yeah. on it the other day. It, it did you? Yeah. It hardly exists. Yeah. <laughs> right. So I applied to China Daily and not very much time after I got a, like a random phone call some morning from a guy, I think he was American, in Beijing, and he was calling me from China Daily, and he's like, look, they liked your application, 
And they like that you have a master's degree. Like you're pretty young, but they uh, they like to have a master's degree and you're going to get an editing test, but I think it looks pretty good for you. So just, you know, don't fuck up the editing test basically. And so I got sent this editing test. I did that. And then he called me again and he's like, you got the job. So the deal was, it was a year long contract. So the reason they were recruiting so much is because this was in 2007 and in 2008 was the Beijing Olympics. And I was kind of, I had never really thought much about China before that, but around that time, you just started seeing stories about China everywhere. Right. Like the Globe and Mail in Canada did this enormous package on, you know, the rise of China. There was all these books about China coming out. It's just like China was like the hot story at that time because, you know, the economy was booming. The Olympics were coming. It was like their coming out party sort of thing. Right. So China Daily, they had... I don't know, they must have gotten some kind of investment from the government to, you know, really expand their publication. And so they were hiring, I want to say like dozens of foreigners to come there and be editors and reporters. And they had only previously had, um, what they're called polishers locally. It was basically, you know, the Chinese reporters would write the story and then the uh, foreign editors would like polish them into readable English. Right. But... The position that I applied for and was offered was supposed to be this hybrid editing reporting role in their business section. And in my my memory, I was told that I was mostly going to be a reporter. And this was a new thing for them. They had never had foreign reporters. Anyway, so I accepted the job. It was going to be for a year. It was free accommodation. And I decided I would go and then... I planned to stay through the Olympics. So my idea was going to be, I was going to stay for uh, like 15 months, 16 months sort of thing. And then come back to Toronto and start trying to live a normal life. But I ended up staying in Beijing for six years. Yeah. As one does. Yeah. No, I mean, yeah, that's one thing. Uh, I remember I went to China and I was like three years, I'll be back, you know, telling this to my my at the time girlfriend and my parents and stuff like that. And I ended up saying twice that, but, uh, mm-hmm. you know, it, it just takes a while to get up and running. So, you know, it doesn't make too much sense to move abroad short term. And yeah, China daily. I mean, I know a couple of people who got their start there, even though it was state owned and ended up being kind of problematic working there for just about everybody I know. Uh, it did give them like the, you know, base in China and it gets you in, it gets the visa, it gets everything. So, so yeah, what, what was your experience there and how did it leave you at the end? Well, it was, it was a really funny place to work, especially when you're just not used to, you know, I was completely new to Chinese culture and, you know, I'd come out of one newspaper that was a, you know, a pretty standard North American newsroom and then ended up in China where it was like this like alternate reality newsroom is what it felt like. Like if, you know, it felt like a newsroom, like people were writing stories and at their desk and phones were ringing and there were story meetings and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. And then when you read like the actual paper, it wasn't like ridiculous in the way that Global Times can be. You know, these like translated headlines of like CNN hurt the feelings of the Chinese people, stuff like that. Right. It wasn't really like that. Like if you, you know, when you flip through it, it looks like a pretty like competent, if slim newspaper. 
and pretty limited in what it covered. What I found was that it was more like they just knew what could and couldn't be done. It was just never even a consideration to like push any boundaries, right? Like you just showed up and you did the stories that you had to do and it wasn't like there was like a sensor going around looking over people's shoulders and telling them what they could and couldn't write. It was just mostly known. So I had a I had a really like kind of funny and weird experience at the beginning where I showed up in Beijing and right away I was scheduled to work these evening shifts where I would start something at like I don't know two thirty or three in the afternoon and then I wouldn't be done until between eleven and twelve every day and it sucked because I was, you know, Beijing was just like this booming town, you know, at the time. And when I did get to go out, like there was so much going on. It was like a great kind of party town. There was all these like foreigners arriving every day. You know how it is. It's just like Beijing's like a very lively city. And especially in, I got there in April. So it was sort of the beginning of spring, summer. Mm-hmm. And, you know, at night it's just like everybody's out. There's stuff going on all the time. And I was stuck in this really drab newsroom outside of the center but, you know, I didn't, I didn't know left from right at that time, so I just sucked it up and did it. And it was pretty pretty grueling work. Like, you'd get these stories coming to you, and they'd just be in, like, really garbled English, and you'd have to figure out what they were trying to say and, like, rewrite it into a news story. And, like, it's no fault of the Chinese reporters. Like, they're not native English speakers. You know, it's tough. I would have a, It would be impossible for me to write a story like that in Chinese or any other language. But anyway, just like it was not exactly how I had imagined my time in China, like working nights editing these kind of stories. Right. And so eventually I went to the guy, Mr. Wang, who was the guy who dealt with all the foreigners. He was like the foreigner boss sort of thing. And I was like, Mr. Wang, like this job that I got hired for was supposed to be like mostly reporting. And, um, you know, it's been like a month or so. I haven't done any reporting I'm, I'm working evenings and this I, I honestly had no idea that I was going to be working evenings I just assumed I'd be working like a normal shift and he's like well he's like you know all the all the foreigners they have to do some editing it's you know we need you to edit but uh yes okay look you, you, we'll try to get you an assignment so my first assignment was to go with a Chinese reporter to interview some like executive for the company Honeywell in a hotel in downtown Beijing and I can't remember how we had divvied up. Like I was going to write one story on this and he was going to write a story on that sort of thing. And, you know, in, uh, in China, a lot of these type of meetings are very kind of formal and there's a lot of ceremony to them. And on this particular day, I had been switched to edit the opinion pages, which was a day shift. It was a Friday. So I was technically supposed to work from about 10 to 6 that day. But this interview was scheduled to start at 10 and end whenever, right? So mm-hmm. I told the reporter about this conflict and I told my boss in the business section about the timing conflict and they're like, oh, don't worry about it. We'll just go, you do your questions first and then you can come back and do your shift. So we go and meet this guy. There's a lot of like the kind of preamble bullshit at these type of meetings, you know, drinking tea and having whatever. And so it took forever before we even got to my questions. And then I explained to the executive about my situation and that I needed to go back early and so I would excuse myself after the questions. And he was, I think he was Canadian. He's like, of course, like, yeah, that's fine. Do, do what you got to do. So I ask him my questions. It takes like less than an hour. And then I excuse myself, take a taxi back to China Daily. So I'm there by like 1230, something like that. So some time goes by 
I write this story. I don't think it even got published. I don't remember. Maybe it did. Maybe it didn't. But about a month or so later, a few weeks later, I go into another meeting with Mr. Wong. And he's doing my like two-month performance review that every new hire goes through. He's like, oh, yes, like, you're, you know, everybody's very happy. You're very good with you. And, you know, you're, you're a great writer. And so we're going to move you to the feature section. And I was like, great. Like, I don't want to be in the business section anyway. So I'm like, that's awesome. And then he goes, and, uh, you know, for your performance review, we're giving you 50%. And I'm like, what? Like 50, like 50 out of 100? He's like, yes, 50, <laughs> 50%. And I was like, what? That doesn't make any sense. Like, you just said everybody was happy with me and, like, liked my work and you're moving me to a feature section. I'm like, 50% is a terrible <laughs> grade. Like, why, do, why did I get 50%? And he tried to, like, dance around it, but I really pressed him. And then he goes, well, he's like, to be honest, there's some concern that you stormed out of an interview. And it was very embarrassing. <laughs> and I'm like, what are you talking about storm? I didn't storm out of any interview. And he's like, yes, uh, I've heard that you stormed out of an interview. And I'm like, I have no idea what you're talking about. And the only thing I could think of was this uh, Honeywell thing. So I'm like, well, I left the interview early because I had to work. You had scheduled me to work at the same time in this interview. And I also told my editor and I told the reporter, and this is not a problem. And he's like, oh, well, yeah, but they said, you know, the, you stormed out of the interview and it's quite embarrassing for the paper. Uh, he's like, but I'll look into it. So then the next day I showed up at work and I go to the features section and the features editor is like, oh no, they moved you back to business. And then I go back to business and they said, no, you're in the feature section. <laughs> and so I go to Mr. Wong. I'm like, what the hell is going on here? Like they're both telling me that I'm not in their sections. And he's like, oh yeah, there's some problems. He's like, just sit at your desk and we'll figure it out. So for the next week, I sat at my desk in the business section doing nothing. Like I was just, I, I had no, no work. I didn't know what I was supposed to be doing. So I just sat there during the hours that I was supposed to work. And then eventually, this Indian journalist who had been there for 10 years or something, we were at a bar one night, and he takes me out, and he's like, okay, so I'm going to tell you what happened. He's like, basically, the business editors think their section is the best section in the newspaper, and they really resent that they hired a foreigner to be a reporter. They don't want foreigners reporting in their section. They just want you to be editing. Mm -hmm. And they basically use this opportunity to try to sabotage you so that they could kick you out of the section. And it worked until you spoke to Mr. Wong and pointed out that something was amiss. And then eventually they figured out what had happened. And then the editor-in-chief of the paper basically told the business editors, like, you don't have a choice in this matter. That We've hired a foreigner for your section. You have to just swallow it. And so after that, the business editors treated me like I was some like special object there that they couldn't, they basically didn't ask me to do any work. So... For the next few months, I just would write like the odd story that may or may not have gotten into print, and the rest of the time I just did freelance stuff. So I'd go into work and I'd like look for articles that I might pitch to Canadian and foreign places, and I started to do a lot of work that way. I started to like get some stories in the Globe and Mail in Canada. I wrote some pieces, I think, eventually for the Guardian, and so it turned out to be an awesome turn of events for me. I got to work days. I barely had to do any work for my day job, but I got paid for it, and <laughs> I got to expand my freelance career. And also, it was just really fun, because we all, all the foreigners lived in this one apartment building on the site of the newsroom, and we had these pretty nice apartments, and we would just like go to one another's places for dinner and for movies and have this built-in social life. So it turned out to be a super fun, fun year after a kind of uh, rocky, rocky beginning.
Yeah, that's great. Because, yeah, I mean, that's always the, the needle you have to thread is like staying legally in China to be able to freelance. Like, uh, and a lot of freelancers did it back then. I mean, there were different ways to figure it out. But, um, yeah, yeah, no, that's a, a good way to, to have a support system and get going on freelancing. So when China Daily came to an end, did you go straight into freelancing or did you get another job at another publication? So by the end of my time at China Daily, I was freelancing quite a bit and I wouldn't say I was making enough money to like be able to do it on my own, but I definitely knew that's what I wanted to do because some of the stories I got to do were a real blast. Like I was, I, I focused more on culture and lifestyle and travel and, you know, because China was still emerging in the minds of editors in Canada and elsewhere, a story that would be obvious to anybody living in China was completely new to them. So, you know, it's, it's always tough. Freelancing is always hard. It's always hard to get like responses from editors, especially when you're new. But, you know, my success rate for pitches was definitely higher than it had been when I was living in Canada because I just had, you know, endless stories that I could write. And so uh, I also like just to backtrack a second, I don't know like if they knew I was freelancing or if they didn't care. Like I wrote a story. There was a time there that something happened, like CNN botched some coverage of Tibet or something like that. And it just created this like uproar in China. And I wrote about what that was like at the paper, like when there were these kind of inflamed tensions between China and the West. And I wrote about what my experience was like working at the paper and, you know, how dealing with censorship, dealing with how these events are seen through my Chinese colleagues' eyes. And I knew this was a risk. Like, the night before it got published, I barely slept because I'm like, they're going to fire me. My visa is going to get canceled. I, I fucked myself. And then the next day I showed up and it was nobody said anything. Like, no, it never <laughs> came up again. You'd think that they would know. Like, they seem to catch every time China Daily or, you know, appeared in the foreign press. So I don't know how they missed this or if they just decided it was not worth a conflict or what, but I didn't get fired. They didn't renew my contract. Like it was never a question. I was dead weight there for them. I wasn't going to stay for longer than a year anyway. But what I did do was that I managed to get a month long gig for the Canadian Broadcasting Corporation for the Olympics, which were that August. So I, my contract finished in mid April and then the Olympics started August 8th, I believe. And so I was going to be, I was basically going to work for the entire month of August for the CBC on their primetime television programs. So between April and August, I went back to Canada for a bit. And then I came back to Beijing, moved to a different apartment. And I started really doing Chinese classes properly. Like I'd had a tutor that year, but you know, could barely speak it. So I started taking classes at this school every morning and then in the afternoons, I would work on my freelance pitches and I mostly did kind of a lot of culture stuff. I really was interested in like kind of first person narrative journalism. So I was pitching like lots of travel pieces. I was pitching pieces on like hutong bars. And I don't know if it was this year or the next year, but I went camping on the Great Wall and wrote a travel piece for the Globe and Mail about that. I went out to Xinjiang, wrote a travel piece about that experience. But I was having a blast. I was, you know, getting some pretty fun stories published. I was being able to use like the voice that I wanted to use. I rarely, if ever, had to do any kind of news story. 
And then August came along and I started working for the CBC and it was amazing to be in, were you in Beijing in 2008? You, you were later, right? No, I, I came for 2008. I was a study abroad student, 2007, 2008 and stayed for the oh, Olympics. Cool. Okay. And I interned at like Asia weekly. If you ever heard of that, it doesn't exist anymore. Oh, I remember that. Yeah, yeah. definitely. <laughs> well, working for the Olympics was a bit of a mixed experience because it was incredible to be there. You know, the city, it was just crazy. Like this global event. Like I remember like my first day on the Olympic green, like George W. Bush and his motorcade came by. Like it was just like it was kind of mind blowing to experience that. And they had the Olympic Green itself was really impressive. So my job for the CBC was that I was a researcher on these two primetime shows. And what I would be doing was basically just like pulling stats, pulling results, things like that, whatever the hosts and the producers needed. So it was pretty like boring work. They're like, pull up Michael Phelps's time and I'd print it off and then hand it to them. It was kind of like anybody could do this work. But I also wrote, there's a Canadian magazine called The Walrus, which it was newish at the time. It was meant to be the kind of Harpers of Canada. And they had this China blog and me and a woman who was a reporter in Shanghai were contributing to that. So I would also like blog about my experiences during the Olympics. And I had a media pass I had to work from like an ungodly hour. It was like, it was supposed to be three in the morning, but I think I eventually got to push back to four because I was just dying. <laughs> so I would wake up, I was living in Chaoyangmen, which was like a half an hour, 45 minute cab ride from the Olympic Green, get up at like 2.45, get in a cab, go to the Olympic Green, get, we were in that thing called Linglong Pagoda, which was that like tower studio that overlooked everything. Uh-huh. Go up there, like drink crazy amounts of coffee, print all the stuff that needed to be printed and do all the research that needed to be done. And then in the afternoons, it would slow down and I'd write a kind of blog for the walrus. And then I would take my media pass when I was done at four. So I was working about 12-hour days. And then I would go to whatever events were on. So like I, I saw Phelps swim. I saw the 100-meter final with Usain Bolt. I went to some basketball games. I saw Federer play. It was, so that was pretty sweet. Like I got, basically got to you know, go to any event that I wanted to with that media pass. But it was, like, totally exhausting. Like, I was sleeping, you know, maximum four hours a night. I felt like I put on, like, 10 pounds just from, like, eating. So, yeah, it was, like, one of, a once-in-a-lifetime thing. Like, so, you know, it was cool to work for the CBC. Like, I'd watched these Olympic shows growing up in Canada, so that was kind of neat. But there are other times where I think, like, I would have rather just experienced the Olympics themselves and not had to worry about the... Because I don't like I made much money. I think they paid me like twenty five hundred dollars to work these insane hours for three weeks. But anyway, so that after the Olympics, so that was two thousand eight. So pretty soon after the Olympics, you had the kind of rumblings of the financial crisis beginning, and I really didn't know what to do. Like I didn't really feel like I wanted to go back to Toronto. A lot of my friends were leaving Beijing. I had a girlfriend there, and then she left around that time. And so I was like, oh man, like, what do I do next? I, I was kind of feeling a little lonely in Beijing at the time. But, you know, as a couple months went on and then it just became clear that this was a disastrous time for everybody. But in journalism, it was, it was going to be a huge disaster. Like there were just, I looked, I'd made cursory looks for jobs in Canada or even in Hong Kong or something like that. And it was just like nothing. And Beijing didn't like empty out the way I thought it was. In fact, like more and more foreigners started coming there around that time because there was just no opportunity in the U.S. and Europe and elsewhere. So 
I kind of waited it out. And then later in, you know, 2008, 2009, like tons of people started flooding in there. So it, the kind of pace of energy really continued in Beijing. And as I was kind of like embarking on freelancing, it turned out to be a great place to be because people were still super interested in it. Change was still happening there really quickly. And I was just getting a lot of, a lot of work. Like a lot of my stories were landing. And I also ended up working at this small newswire. It used to be the UN's newswire. And then it kind of went off on its own. And it, it focused a lot on like environmental justice stuff, human rights and things like that. And so I became their stringer. I can't even, this is embarrassing, but I can't even remember the name of it. Um, <laughs> IUP or something. It was, it was initials. I'd have to look, look it up. It's been a long time since I've uh, thought about this. But so that, for that first year or so, that was my arrangement really, where I was doing about a story or two a week for them and then working on my own kind of more interesting features on the side. Right. And I guess if this isn't jumping ahead too much, so I had done that stint. I had been a study abroad student in 2007, 2008. But I only really moved to China for real in 2011, so a little bit after what you said. But it was this kind of boom-seeming time, and there were always foreigners moving there, and especially with the financial crisis, which had a lot to do with why I was like, okay, I go back to China. Things are still going well there. Because of that, a lot of people were coming too, I think, and I remember I get there, I have this grand plan to freelance. It was in way over my head. And I have coffee mm-hmm. with you and I have coffee with Kit Gillett separately. I remember I met you at like uh, Dong Jimen at the mall there at a Costa Coffee. Yeah, I remember, I remember that. I was thinking <laughs> about that today. It was like ex- almost exactly 10 years ago, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah. I moved to China on September 9th, 2011. And... Uh, it must have been my friend Dan Chinoy who put me in touch, although I don't actually remember with you guys. And I just remember talking to you specifically, and you were writing this book. It was going to come out soon, and it had come off this freelance story. And I just remember coming off of my meeting with you and thinking, like, wow, I made I made the right decision. This is the place to be. Like, mm. you know, the fact that something can take off like that you know you can write one story it can turn into a book and i remember telling this to my friend Nomon back in the states like this is where it's at this is where everybody should be i mean i didn't go anywhere in freelancing in the end but it it definitely made me think i was on the right path even though i was like nearly broken having to make visa <laughs> runs like within three months like it was already very tenuous yeah. but uh that left a big impression on me so i just thought i would ask you you had written this story for GQ. You had done this book. Can you just tell a little bit about that whole sequence of events? Sure. Well, so I'm trying to just like get my chronology right here. So, okay, what happened was I was freelancing at the time. I was having a lot of fun. And, you know, the, the stories that I really wanted to do, like I said, were these kind of first-person experiential narrative pieces. And it's not always easy to do those. They can be kind of self-indulgent or feel like kind of Hunter S. Thompson rip-offs. But whenever I got the chance to do it, I loved it. And so, like, the earliest days that I was in China, I remember hearing about this phenomenon where Chinese companies would hire foreigners, like specifically white foreigners, to basically pretend to be part of companies. And, you know, I heard about people giving speeches or going to events and 
you know, you dress up in a suit. And it was like, it was just all about face. Like they, they thought, these Chinese companies thought that it was impressive that they had foreigners like in their company or representing their company. And it was all kind of bullshit. Like the, the actual foreigners weren't doing anything. And so I was like, that's hilarious. I would love to write about that. And I kept my ear out for something of that nature to come around that I could write about. So one day, this friend of mine called me up and he's like, I got one of these things. My friend's organizing it. Can you do it? I'm like, absolutely. But just so you know, I'm going to write about it. And he's like, I don't care. It's totally fine. He's like, just don't tell. I don't, I don't use his real name because this became like a real issue later, which I'll go into. But let's just call him uh, Nick for the sake of the story. Mm-hmm. So he's like, just don't tell Nick that you're going to do this. But I don't care. And so I was like, great. So we go on this trip. It was to some like dusty city. Can't even remember the name of it anymore. Like it was some like third tier Chinese city. And there was about five of us who went down there. And it was some like high tech, like this, this, some chip manufacturer was making this facility where they were going to make computer chips or something. And at that point, this factory was just a shell. And they had this little temporary, this temporary office set up near the construction site and so we would go and sit in this office at these desks just like reading magazines and sleeping and you know the Chinese workers would come by and like look in and we'd just be sitting there it was it was ridiculous and then like twice (laughs) a day or so we'd go to the factory we'd pretend to take notes we'd wear hard hats and they'd like tour us around and nobody ever like was really clear as to why we were there what we were doing what the point of it was but we did know that there was this event where like the mayor was going to be there and it was going to be this big old thing. And so this oldest guy in our group who was like 39 or so at the time, he was given like the title of manager or whatever, CEO, I can't remember what it was, but they made business cards for him and they had this speech pre-written that he was going to give at the ceremony. So like meanwhile, like during the evenings, we would go out into the town and like party and get wasted and then show up at like seven, just like terribly hungover at this site and then just do nothing for the day. <laughs> but anyway, the day of the, um, the event, we go to the factory and there was a stage set up. There was all these chairs. There was like dignitaries. There was these women in like flowery dresses. And we were sitting in like the front row. I like it, it's a little blurry, but I want to say there was like 100 or 200 people there. It was like a big thing. And there was TV cameras there. The marriage showed up, so they were like filming it all. And then, uh, you know, the guy who was our manager or whatever, the fake manager, he gets up and he gives this speech, and it's in English and then translated. And it's just one of these like flowery speeches that you hear in China. And then when he's done, like fireworks start going off uh, (laughs) beside the stage. And then there's all sorts of like glad handing at the end. We're shaking people's hands and he's like getting filmed by, you know, a TV camera. Anyway, it was just, it was totally ridiculous, a bit, you know, hilarious. And then eventually after four or five days, they kind of said like, well, you can all stay a little bit longer. You can go home now. And I'm like, I'm just going to go home. I got what I needed. This is boring as hell. I, I just want to get back to Beijing. <laughs> so I go back to Beijing and I just, like the day I got back, I just like dumped the whole story into a Word document, just like wrote it out. And then I started pitching it. First pitch, I think to the Walrus in Canada gets rejected. I pitched Slate, gets rejected. I pitched, there was this travel website at the time called World Hum. They rejected it. 
And I was like, oh, I, I guess maybe this like isn't you know, that good of a story. And then this might have been a couple months later. I was back in Canada and I was reading The Atlantic. And there was an article, they have this front section called Dispatches, which is now like a collection of different things. But back then it was mostly foreign dispatches, like just little like short narratives, almost like talk of the town, but from abroad. But this one in particular was written by Mark Bowden. And it was about him trying to start a turkey farm or something. And it was written in this kind of like humorous way. It was a little vignette. And I was like, you know, like that's kind of like my story in terms of like the style and so I'd never thought of pitching The Atlantic before because it just seemed like a more serious political magazine. But I was like, oh, what the hell, I'll try them. And so I managed to get an editor's email, and I emailed him. And he was like, I like this. I, I like this story. And, you know, you, you can make sure it goes through, like, a fact check and everything. It holds up. And I was like, yeah. And so he's like, okay, we'll take it. And I'm like, this is great, The Atlantic, you know. But yeah. I thought, like, whatever, it's just, like, some little yarn. Not going to be a big deal. So that story comes out. I want to say it was like June 2010 and within days it just like built and built and built to the point where it was just like the, it was by far the most viral story I've ever written. I've never experienced anything like that before or since my friend who worked for, I want to, I think it's called national journal. It was the Atlantic's kind of sister publication at the time. He told me that that story was the up until then it was the most read story on the Atlantic's website ever. Wow! And I started to get like all sorts of emails from like producers about rights. Like I was being interviewed by like you name it. Like I was on NPR. I think CNN called me. CNN did a story, but they never referred to my story, which is really annoying. BBC wrote about it. Like people I went to journalism school were emailing, <laughs> being like, "I saw, I saw your story." Like it was fucking crazy. And it, this was like an 800 word story, but I think it just like it. So this was in, did I say, I think it was 2010, right? Yeah. So it was still like in the, in the aftermath of the financial crisis. So I think it just really like touched this nerve where like, wow, if you go to China, you can be like a complete waste of space and they're going to pay you to do nothing. And so I would get like for years, I got emails from people <laughs> and they were kind of, a lot of them were really sad. A lot of them were like, I'm a pilot. I can't get a job anywhere. Can you like hook me up with one of these? And then other ones were just like people just being assholes, being like, oh, I want to make money for nothing. Like I, as if I was like the uh, recruiter for like useless white dudes everywhere. Right. And so then, like, so a couple things happened. The guy who organized the trip was absolutely furious <laughs> and he was really upset. And then we, when I spoke to him about before the article came out, I said like, look, look, there's nothing negative about the company. It's all about the experience. I've disguised all of the details. I don't say what the company is. I don't say what it did. I don't use all of our full names. It's not like a takedown of the company. It's just about the weirdness of this experience. And he's like, oh, well, that's, that's cool. Then that's cool. And then the article comes out and like, nobody thought I, who, who would have guessed that it would blow up like this. Like I had no idea. I thought like 10 people would read it and that would be it. But when it came out, like, I heard through other people that he was really furious. And then, like, I'm not even kidding. For years later, like, up until when my book came out and afterwards, he would leave these just, like, horrible comments about me, like, wherever my name came up online. And um, under, like, multiple names, like, he must have got friends to do it. And it was awful because I was basically, like, kind of being trolled around the Internet for, like, three or four years after that which was yet another lesson about like sometimes some of these things are out of control, but like in retrospect, I guess I would have done it differently. Like I, I, I didn't tell them about the story cause I was told not to, 
but maybe I would have been better off if I had just said, like, look, I want to write a story. Can I come still or no? Because that was a pretty shit experience. Yeah, wow. Um, but anyway, so then the second major kind of bad thing happened, which is that I saw, as I was writing the book, I decided that I was, this was a good way to wrap up my time in China. And I wanted to move to New York. And the one thing I felt like I hadn't been able to do in China, even though like, you know, I did a couple pieces for the Atlantic. I did about three pieces for them in the end. I did some stuff for the New York Times, like just a couple things. I did some pieces for the Wall Street Journal. So I was right. I was publishing in like well-known places, but I had never been able to sell like a real kick-ass magazine feature, which is kind of what I always wanted to do in journalism. Um, and I, by by that I mean like a you know like a five thousand words you know kind of back of the book thing. Right. And I, I always loved GQ, and that was GQ and Esquire were like the places I wanted to write for, and like I just could not get anybody's attention there. Like I couldn't get replies to pitches like I don't think I even knew like what really made a magazine feature um at that time like I, I knew how to do these like short yarns and travel pieces and things like that I had a lot of friends that had moved to New York I would come here once every year or two to try to meet editors and things and I loved it and I was like this is the time I'm going to use the book to move there but I got here and I realized that, like, I'm really, like, having to start from scratch here. Like, the book kind of didn't launch my career like I hoped it would. It didn't get me the attention of editors like I hoped it would. I, I hoped that I would get here and, like, on the back of the book would be able to, like, get assignments. Like, you know, when a book becomes really successful, all of a sudden you see that writer's name everywhere. And that didn't happen. So, yeah, that was, like, a hard. And I'm like, now, so I found myself in New York. The book was, like, a, you know, a bit of a flop. And I did not have connections at magazines, at least the ones I wanted to write for, that I thought I might. And then I also, like, wasn't in China anymore, so I didn't have, like, the access to the kinds of stories that I was writing before. So that was, like, a pretty low moment. Like, there was uh, that fall through winter was, like, pretty bleak. I didn't really know what I was going to do. And I was, like, cobbling together some freelance work, but really, like hemorrhaging money like I kind of spent through all of the advance for the book and it's just like kind of a tough time so what the uh the thing that kind of changed is that I had connected with one of the guys who is the founder of Roads and Kingdoms which was is an online journal about travel food politics things like that and they were still like kind of getting off the ground and it was basically two guys running it with one photo editor and i wrote a really fun story for them about these people who go out at night with their terriers and kill rats <laughs> and it was like a tiny amount of money but i had a blast writing it and i thought it turned out really well and they really loved it and so they asked me if i wanted to like help them out editing and so i started working for them part-time as an editor so that gave me a little bit of stability and then I started to like you know I was really like looking for stories to do and I ended up kind of selling a few pieces to GQ and then a few other publications here and there and then you know started to kind of like pick myself up piece by piece and like you know kind of like move beyond the book like I stopped even like mentioning the book after a while like I just because I just found it just didn't help so yeah, like in retrospect about the book, like I don't regret doing it. Like it was, you know, who who would say no to to an offer to write a book? 
so that like you know for a couple of years it really it really like kind of hurt that that had not worked out the way I wanted it to, but in the end it was a bit of a blessing because I realized for one that I wasn't like as good as I thought I was, and if I wanted to like be good and write for these like big ass magazines and do the kind of features I wanted to do like I had to work way harder than I was working, and like really learn what my limitations were and learn what my strengths were and, and things like that. So, you know, in the end, like, in the three or so years after I moved to New York, like, you know, there's, there's like, a downside to all of this. But, like, I really did get to do the type of stories that I always wanted to do. Like, I did get to write big magazine features. I did get sent on some really awesome trips by magazines. And, and so it felt good to, like, be able to move past that and to not let it sort of just, like, completely devastate my career and what I wanted to to do with it. But, I mean, things have all worked out in the end. I mean, I think, even a book aside, like everybody finds the transition back to the U.S. a little bit or, or back to wherever a little bit difficult. But, Definitely. I mean, I feel like everybody I know who came out of China, even if you go through a little rough patch at first, like they, they always end up sticking the landing. Um, yeah. So that that's good. And and I guess not to skip around too much, but just just for time, like I pulled up your bio, uh, your LinkedIn profile just to get the sequence of events right. But I remember not that a couple of years later you're named the executive editor of Maxim and I'm like, yeah. "Wow." Like, you know, it went from a low to again a seeming high, but this is, you know, what we perceive from the outside. So I I don't know the first thing about it. I I did not have any contact with you in that era. And I was just wondering how that all came about and what that experience was like. <laughs> okay, so I had been, I was features editor at Roads and Kingdoms. And it was small, but it started to get quite buzzy, mostly because Anthony Bourdain became an investor. And we launched a series of features under his name, and I was the main editor of that. And meanwhile, I was basically splitting time between R&K and my own freelancing work. And, uh, you know, like I said, I'd started to get some, like, fairly big stories. I got a big feature in GQ about the North Korea Film Festival. I wrote about this American actor, Jonathan Cosreed, for the New York Times Magazine. Um, I had this string, and this is in 2006, I had a string of features, one in The Atavist, one in Playboy, and one in The Times Magazine, three months in a row. And which, 2016, right? Yeah, 2016. So like that, gotcha. and for, so that in like my mind was like, well, this is you know that's amazing. Like I don't, you know, it's hard to write these features. It's hard to sell them, but they were all China stories for one, or China related. And I also was like, man, like I only made I don't know twenty thousand dollars from these stories at most, and it was like an enormous amount of work. Like sometimes mm -hmm. they were like a year in the making, and so that's. Summer, I guess, I, I was really in this like crisis moment where I was, you know, in my mid 30s. And yeah, I was having like the most success I'd ever had as a freelance magazine writer, even if it wasn't like, you know, stratospheric. And I was also kind of working at this cool publication that people was getting a lot of attention. But financially, it just like did not add up. Like I just wasn't making enough money to live here by a long shot, really. And I also, I had a kind of like a personal crisis around that time. Like I had a really bad breakup and 
I just kind of had had a a moment where I was just like something's got to change. Like I've been I've been mostly freelancing for ten years, and you know I keep like trying and trying and trying, and it never really had gotten me to the point where I was making like an adult living or saw some kind of stable future for myself. So I basically resigned myself to the idea that I had to get a job. Like I had to be, I had to find a full-time job that was going to pay me enough to live here. Right. And so I started looking around. I applied to Esquire, applied to some other places. I can't remember. And Maxim was hiring a features editor. And so I, applied I, I wrote a cover letter and sent my resume and everything and I got an interview pretty quickly and my interview with Maxim was at their old offices which was like it was a big mid- midtown office like a kind of cool magazine thing sure but nobody was there it was really bizarre I show up and nobody was there and the editor that was supposed to interview me the, man, the managing editor was there and then but the main guy was not there and he showed up late and he comes in and he's like flustered and he's got my resume and he looks at it, he's like wait a minute, you haven't even worked in a magazine before. And I'm like, well, no, but, you know, I've written for a lot and I work for a publication that does magazine stuff. And he's like, yeah, yeah, but you've never worked in a magazine. I'm like, no, but obviously I think I can do it. Otherwise I wouldn't have applied for this job, you know? He's like, okay, 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 okay. So then he gave me an assignment to, like, profile a Victoria's Secret model or something like that. And I did that and he's like, this is really good, this is really good. Like, I think you're our guy, like, for the features editor job. So a few days later, I got offered the features editor job, and it was only going to be, I think it was going to be part-time, but I was going to be allowed to freelance. So it was like kind of like a version of what I had before, but like three times as much money. Like it was, you know, it, it still wasn't a fortune, but it was like a lot more money that I'd been used to. Sure. And then I get offered this job, and then like I don't hear anything for days. And I email the guy, the executive editor, and I was like, what's going on here? And he just... He's like, things have changed. I, I'll, I hope to get back to you soon. I'm like, oh, fuck. Did this fall apart or whatever? <laughs> and then I get a, a side email from somebody else at the magazine saying that the main guy was like an art director who kind of like ran the show there. He wants to meet you. So I go in and meet him. And he's like, well, things have changed. And uh, the executive editor is no longer with us. And we like you for the job. <laughs> and so I was like, Oh shit. Like what? And you could just tell that things were quite chaotic. Like, but they had moved offices in the time that this had all happened. They were in a different office and they offered me like what I thought was just like an astronomical sum of money for journalism. Like not your wildest dreams, but like when you're a freelancer for 10 years and you know how much freelancers get paid to then be offered like a proper adult salary. It felt like a big number. And I could also tell that they had kind of like no other options. Like they were really desperate. They needed somebody to start right away because they were in production. They had this tiny skeleton staff. Like the executive editor was effectively like the main editor. Like they had no other real editors there. And so I had some leverage. So I asked for even more money and then they got it. They gave it to me. So it was technically a freelance thing. Like I was a contract worker and I got paid by the issue. But it was the first time in my life that I was going to get paid really well. So I started right away, and it was pretty chaotic, but it was also a, a, it was a real fun time. Like it, They had a really fun group of people working there. It was a lot of fun to like put this magazine together from scratch every month, and they had shifted the focus at the time away from the kind of like frat boy maxim that most people think 
into a, a really luxury lifestyle magazine. They wanted it to be like James Bond in the Riviera kind of thing was, was what they were going for. And yeah, I became like this overnight executive editor and I could still in my own time freelance. So it was kind of, for me, it was kind of like an ideal setup. Like it allowed me to stabilize my life and pay off debts. And the financial anxiety of freelancing was really starting to kill me by the end. Like once I, I had a, like a full-blown panic attack where I thought I was having a heart attack and like went to the hospital and everything, like it was a terrifying experience. And I don't know like what exactly caused it, but the pressures of freelancing certainly didn't help. Like, it, it, you know, as, if, as fun as it can be to do like a kick-ass magazine piece and see it in print and then have people applaud you on Twitter and stuff like that, there's so much shit that goes along with it, like the ignored emails, ignored pitches, like stories being killed for just like what feel like frivolous reasons. It was pretty brutal. And I just like, I really just hit this kind of emotional wall doing it. And so Maxim was really a chance for me to like, just be more stable for a period and work in an office around people and still have some time on the side to freelance. And so I, I worked there for almost, it wasn't that long. I mean, people there didn't last that long. And I lasted a year, a little over a year and a half, I guess, which isn't that long. And like, I wish I could say what happened because it's a crazy story, but I just, I just, I can't for a couple of reasons. But needless to say, I left in March 2018. I basically, I kind of had to, quit basically more or less and then yeah so then I was back to freelancing but I just I still didn't have the appetite to it and then around that time I had a friend who worked at Dow Jones which owns Barron's and Penta and Penta had launched as a print magazine it originally was a section of Barron's and it was becoming this glossy and they really needed an editor and so I applied for that I got that job in the summer of 2018 and uh, yeah it's basically where I am now. Yeah, I guess, Maxim, not too surprising. Chaotic on the way in, chaotic on the way out. Yeah, exactly. It was really fun because I got to do like I got to do some kind of celebrity profiles. I'd never done that before. I got to basically choose every single story in the magazine. And, you know, we didn't have a, we, we had a pretty small budget and we had some pretty strict parameters of what we could cover. But, you know, I was doing like a lot of the interviews myself. Like we could take junkets there. So like I went on some pretty fun trips for work you know it was still like even though maxim was a lot smaller at one point it was the biggest men's magazine in the world and now when i was working there it was much smaller it still had the cachet of like a famous magazine so there was a lot of like kind of fun parties and dinners we got to go to and like if you wanted to you go to some like press thing every night if you had the energy for that um, so that was, it was pretty fun. Uh, it was a pretty fun time. And I really, really liked the people I worked with there. Like we had a really eclectic, fun group. So it was like, it was a super fun office environment, like really quirky. It felt a bit like being in, uh, in the TV show, the office sometimes. Yeah. That sounds like great experience. And I mean, yeah. it's rare you get that level of control in journalism. Yeah, Absolutely. Before we move on to stories, there was just uh, one last thing 
so you, you mentioned to me again before the podcast when we were talking that uh, you've written this play and it was interesting to see you said it was inspired by Anthony Bourdain. I mean, I had seen you had written this play, but I, I didn't know the first thing about what it was about. And it's just interesting because Bourdain, for not really being a journalist, is name checked a lot on this podcast. Like, you know, one of the questions I always ask is if you if you could trade places with one journalist living or dead, who would it be? Anthony Bourdain, I'm pretty sure is the top answer I get. <laughs> And, uh, you know, I have a friend uh, who works at CNN and worked with him and, like, reveres him. And he, he kind of looms large over a lot of things. And, and so I was just wondering, yeah, tell us the story of this play and, and uh, how do you come about doing it and just a little bit about it. Sure. Well, like I said, I was an editor at Roads and Kingdoms where he became an investor. And so I was the one that was curating his feature series. And then through RNK, I met him twice, I think, maybe two or three times. But pretty brief. Like, you know, I met him, shook his hand. I, I wrote a couple stories for this series. I heard through some of the guys who ran RNK that one of them in particular, he was a pretty big fan of, which was like a huge compliment for me that, you know, good Bourdain. You know, the funny thing is like, I never really watched his show much because I feel like, you know, you, you would know this living abroad, like you're kind of already living that life in a way. Like when you live abroad, you're living a more authentic version of travel to a place because you live there and you're experiencing the local culture, you know, locals and things like that. Mm -hmm. So I always felt like when I saw his shows, like, well, yeah, it's like better than a generic travel show, but I also like kind of do this stuff already. So I wasn't like super drawn to it. Sure. But then when I started working at RNK and then I was hearing his name more and I read Kitchen Confidential, which is like, a, it's just an awesome book. He's a, he's a, he was a really gifted writer uh, and storyteller. You know, I got more into his orbit and I really appreciated some of the things that he was doing. Like the fact that he had become an investor in RNK, like this wasn't going to be a big moneymaker for him, but he really believed in the mission and he lent us his his name, and sometimes he lent us his presence for a few things. And so I really became more like, I really had a lot of respect for him. And I also just felt like, you know, the group at RNK, we all had the same, like, worldview, like a real, like, hunger to experience the world and try new things and, like, be out living it. And Bourdain, like, you know, was, like, the embodiment of that, sort of idea and then I also interviewed him for Maxim and when he was getting a tattoo he I actually got invited to get a tattoo but I balked at that but he was getting this like traditional Japanese tattoo like a stick and poke thing for this series that he was doing for a whiskey company because mm -hmm. the guy just worked all the time like he always had side projects so I spent this day with him where he was getting the tattoo and I was like right there as this was happening and he was filming the show and then in one of the downtimes, I got to do an interview for Maxim and we talked about like tattoos and writing and he talking about ghost stories and stuff like that. It was just, it was a pretty good interview. I listened to it after he died, which was kind of like haunting in a way. But anyway, so then he, after he died, like everybody, everybody who was a fan of his just was like, really like, holy shit, like that's, you know, that's crazy. And I remember the day that he died, a friend of mine who was a huge fan in Canada texted me and just said, like, I just don't understand how somebody could have a life like he had, could kill himself. And immediately I was just like, well, because clearly that life wasn't that good. That was the immediate kind of answer that came to my mind. And then the other thing was that, like, you know, having lived abroad, having been like, you know, a single 
for most of my life and traveled a lot and living this very like up and down life my whole life like just kind of like highs followed by lows and I feel like I mean I, this is just totally it is totally projecting but like what I felt is that Bourdain experienced that but like times a million you know like just ups and downs no consistency and then he also had to deal with kind of fame and everything that went with it and I just I was I thought a lot about like what it would be like to be somebody like him who again I'm totally guessing but I feel like he became trapped in a life that made him miserable and saw no way out of it and he was when he died he was 61 he was on the road 250 days a year he was twice divorced and I just like you know you know how it is like when you're in a foreign city in a hotel and like you know when you just really don't want to be there like when you're depressed and you're traveling it's the fucking worst like it's just the worst feeling yeah and I just imagine like what a, what that would be like for him and that it was so bad that it all it led him to take his own life and what I felt was that after he died there was a lot of like these kind of like saintly portrayals of him with no curiosity I thought about his death you know and I don't mean like the specific details of his breakup or whatever. I just, I mean like the more like philosophical, like subconscious, what was going on sort of thing. And I tried in various ways to like write it as an op-ed or an article and I just couldn't get it right. And it felt like too, so I tried to like tie it together with my own story because it was around that time where I'd had this really bad breakup and decided I really needed to like get my life together. And I just like, I, I couldn't get it right. And in the meantime, I was taking acting classes just because when I switched to editing, I missed the creativity of freelancing. And so I started taking acting classes for fun and then auditioning for some plays and I was getting some parts in small play festivals and things. So I was like, I had theater on the mind. And then I just had a conversation with a friend one day thinking about like, you know, what can I do with this idea? Like, I feel like I have something to say about it. And then kind of came up with the idea of a play. And then so, yeah, I started working on it for the last, you know, I started working on it two years ago and I put it up put it down, like work on it again here and there. And then when I finished, I workshopped it at a theater for a couple of classes. And then um, I decided I was going to just like publish a print copy. So I worked with a designer and created a print version of it. And I'm really happy with that. It was really fun to be able to do something that really felt purely mine. Like I didn't have to compromise with an editor or anything and worked with a really nice designer to make it. So now I'm at the stage where I'm, you know, I've, I've sent it to directors and producers and the, you know, the next step will be like a really good reading, hopefully like a, with real actors. And then ultimately I'd like to get it produced, but it's been more of a passion project and I'm really happy with how it's turned out, even if it doesn't ever get produced. Sure. And yeah, it makes sense how, yeah, how like unknowable these, some of these things are that it would make more sense to take it in a fiction direction rather than trying to yeah. speculate. Tell me a little bit about the content of the play. It's not like strictly biographical and the character, it's clearly based on Bourdain, but I very specifically didn't name him or you know make it exactly like him because it is fictional. And I'm like, I'm basically, the whole play is almost like, a psychoanalysis of who I think Anthony Bourdain is. And it's, uh, you know, it's very like personal to me because I use a lot of my own experiences in it. But the premise of it is basically that a man wakes up in a hotel room and he's not totally sure how he got there. 
and he starts to kind of recount the his version of events about how he got in this room and it, the whole play is very dreamlike like it bounces around in time and it goes back to like him telling stories of working in the kitchen or him telling stories of writing a book and then there's another character who plays the concierge of the hotel who slips in and out of his monologues as different characters from his life and the whole play is kind of like trying to solve this riddle about how he ended up in this place yeah and so i like i want people to know that it's about it's based on anthony bourdain inspired by him because he is such a kind of interesting figure and his his life and death are so fascinating but i also didn't want people to think they're going in to watch this like biography of anthony bourdain because that's not really what it's about it's more about like the themes of loneliness and the meaning of home and you know the uh, kind of decisions that we make in life that have unintended consequences things like that yeah that sounds very interesting very cool and it's definitely something i can relate to you know you get mm-hmm. sent on these cool assignments that seem glamorous or whatever or exciting and you know there are definitely moments when it's go 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 and then you're at the end of the day in your hotel wherever and you know i'm not always happy it's kind of fucking depressing sometimes like even though i'm doing this nominally exciting thing it's uh not always what it seems yeah um okay and then so i think that kind of wraps up the biographical section so next we'll move on to talk about some stories there are a couple stories of yours i wanted to talk about One you've kind of hinted at so far in the interview, and it's about your coverage of the North Korean Film Festival for GQ magazine, and you wrote a long-form story. So if you could just share with us the story behind the story, how you came up with the idea, went about executing it, wrote it, start to finish. Sure. So I was living in New York then. I think it was 2014, so I'd only been here for a year. And there's this travel company in Beijing called Koryo Tours. I don't know if you remember them, but they they organize trips to North Korea and other places. Oh, yeah. And every two years in North Korea, they have a film festival. And I had spoken before I left Beijing with Koryo's PR guy. And I, I said, like, I'd love to do some kind of North Korea thing. So if anything comes up, just let me know. And so he had seen, I, had, I wrote an article for GQ where I trained to dunk a basketball, and that was my first piece for them. <laughs> and uh, he had seen that, and he emailed me, and he's like, look, we have this story coming up. We have this uh, sorry, trip coming up to the film festival. And he's like, if you could sell this to GQ, you know, we can like, offer it to you exclusively. And so I pitched it to GQ. My editor liked it. It took a long time for it to actually get assigned, but eventually it did. And so I was set to go to, to North Korea for this festival. It was going to be, a, I think it was a nine-day trip. You know, the North Korea Film Festival had been written about before, but never in like a real like big-time, like first-person, here's-the-experience-of-the-festival way. And so one of the conditions for GQ was like, they were like, this has to be an exclusive. Like, nobody can do this story. And I was like, well, that's a, they say it's an exclusive, so... You know, as far as I know, it's an exclusive. So sometime not long before the actual trip was going to happen, Corio asked if it would be okay if Vanity Fair did the story too. And I was just like, absolutely not. Like this, I sold this as an exclusive. Like they'll take it away from me if it's not. Like they were really adamant about this fact that it had to be an exclusive. 
And so they're like, they're like, okay, okay, that's, you know, that's fine. We'll, we'll work, work around it. So I found out then that they had sent Pico Iyer for Vanity Fair to North Korea, but before I went, before the film festival, but that on his trip, he did a lot of the itinerary that we were going to do, like go to the studio. It's like the big movie studio there, do some other stuff related to movies. And so I was like, this isn't cool. Like they, and they're like, well, we can't say no to Vanity Fair and they, they're not going on the trip. So, you know, you just kind of have to live with it. And so I mentioned, I told, I told my editor this at GQ and he wasn't happy about it, but he's like, okay, whatever. Like at least we still have the uh, festival exclusive. So then uh, we're going the trip and it was just, did you go to North, North Korea when you're in Beijing? I never did. I wanted to, but yeah, never did. Well, it's as kind of weird and crazy as you think it is. Like it just, Pyongyang is just so bizarre. It feels like a movie set. Like everything is immaculate. It's quite a, an impressive looking city. Like there's, you know, there's big skyscrapers and there's this weird like pyramid hotel that was still empty at the time. And you know, scattered throughout are these like monuments to the leaders and things like that. Like it just, it feels like you've gone in to the Truman show or something like that. Like it, it just feels really bizarre. And then I was on a tour group and I was told not to say I was a journalist. So I said, I was like a travel researcher or some bullshit like that. <laughs> and we had a couple of Korean guides, the photographer, this guy named Yuri, he was a war photographer. I lived in Iraq for years. He was like this grizzled, heavy smoking Russian guy who I just loved, like just the greatest. He was, he was awesome to work with. Such a good guy. Had so many great stories. And then we had this kind of like really eclectic group, people who ended up on this trip, just an awesome, I would have had fun on this trip, even if I wasn't doing like a dream assignment for GQ, you know, it was just so crazy and interesting, but it, it was made all that more special by the fact that I'd always wanted to write for GQ. GQ for me was always like the place, if I could work anywhere, it would have been for GQ. And I read it with relish every month and I wanted to like be some of these, like, I don't know if you know Wells Tower, but he was their kind of like big time writer at the time. And I just love this guy. So to be able to be on this assignment, like it was for me, the dream story. And then about halfway through the trip, there was another photographer on the trip. And he said that he had been North Korea a bunch of times and he was doing a photo book, he said. And then one night towards the end, he got a little drunk and he let slip that he was there for Vanity Fair. And I was like, what the fuck? Like, this is, you know, this is supposed to be an, ex like, I was, I was really like, you know, furious. Like, you know, because I thought that I had been like duped. Like they had told me that it was going to be an exclusive, but then like greenlit a project for Vanity Fair. But what had actually happened was that he had basically snuck on the trip for Vanity Fair. He was shooting it for Vanity Fair. I didn't tell them. And he was shooting for the Pico Iyer story. So there was this big drama over this. So like the trip ended up great, awesome, like went to all these movies, like, you know, did a little countryside stuff, like got the material for an awesome story, really kind of interesting and a real special experience. This was a kind of a crazy time because they had three Americans there that were in prison in North Korea. So it was, it was, a, it was risky to do it. And in some ways, like quite lucky that nothing happened. But anyway, came out really happy with the story. There was a, some drama over this Vanity Fair thing, and they told me, Corio told me that they had gotten assurances from Vanity Fair that theirs wouldn't come out until mine was out. So I was like, okay. And they, they said it wasn't going to be about the film festival. It was just going to be about film in North Korea. And so anyway, I wrote a couple uh, 
web things right when I got back. I got on Anderson Cooper to talk about it, which was a really cool experience. Oh, cool. And then I, and then I worked on the feature for the next couple months. And then they were really happy, like, you know, not because of me. It just was like a home run story because we got such awesome access and it was such a unique piece. And I had a great editor there and they like, they really edit the shit out of the stories at GQ. They have like, you know, three layers of editors or whatever it is. And so by the time it was ready for print, it was just in excellent shape, great photos. And I was in Cuba and I got this like angry voicemail from my editor being like, what the fuck? Vanity Fair has got the same story. Like you said, this was an exclusive. It turned out what they did is like Vanity Fair wrote this piece and presented it as if it was like from the festival, even though it wasn't, even though the guy had been there before. And if you read it, it's very like carefully worded as to never indicate that they're at the festival, but the hook is still this film festival. And then takes you like to a studio or here or there with all these photos from it because they had snuck a photographer on it. So that was like a bit of a downer because like GQ was quite upset over this, even though I felt like it was something I had totally no control over. But in the end, it worked out really well. That, that story did really well for them. People were happy with it. It got into the Best American Travel Writing book, which was like a big thrill for me because I'd always read that book as a source of inspiration. You know, for me, that was the kind of story I always wanted to do in journalism. And even though I don't think I'll ever be able to do a story like that again, I'm really happy that, that I was able to do that one. Yeah, that's a crazy story. I mean, I've had colleagues go to North Korea and basically nobody comes back without something bizarre or weird happening. And that's, that's super weird about uh, the whole <laughs> Vanity Fair saga, though. It's uh, such a strange thing, but I guess goes to show the, some of the competition in journalism yeah. The other thing is nobody gave a shit. Like, no, not a single person that I know was like recognized that there was two similar stories. Nobody cared. It didn't affect like my story in the end. But yeah, it's just like this crazy competition for these stories that in the end doesn't make all that much of a difference. Right. Yeah. I mean, that certainly happens at Reuters. We have this like obsession with being first, and like yeah. a, a competitor will write a story. It'll be like, well, we can't do it now. But to your average person like nobody is keeping that close of an eye on things that no exactly you know the same people generally will not even see both stories so yeah yeah next up i'm going to do a really abbreviated version of the lightning round feel free to answer at whatever length you want so uh do you feel ready yeah i'm ready First up, what is a publication you read, listen to, or watch just for fun, but that is journalistic in nature? So it can be whatever medium, print, podcast, documentary, but kind of journalistic. Well, I mean, I read the New York Times, obviously, but that's not just for fun. But one section of the New York Times that I read just for fun is the real estate section. <laughs> for some reason, like... I really like their real estate section. Like, you know, they have like people on apartment hunts. They have some design stuff, which I'm really interested in. And it's just nice because it's like, you know, it's pretty much like free of politics and it's like a nice kind of retreat. And so usually when I get the paper delivered, it comes on Saturday and that'll be the first section that I read. And it really is just for fun because like, you know, I'm not going to be pitching real estate stories to the times or anything like that. That's cool. What is the best journalistic article piece? Again, it can be whatever medium that you have consumed recently. 
Uh, definitely the Atlantic cover story in uh, their most recent issue by a writer named Jennifer Senior. I think that's how you pronounce it. It's about one family's aftermath of their son dying in 9-11. And it's just like a really kind of beautifully done human story about how people deal with grief and tragedy differently. And one reason that I really liked it is that I just feel like you don't read stories like that anymore. It's the type of story that you would have read in Esquire 10 years ago, like a really heartfelt, like just well-told human story. And I really applaud The Atlantic for doing it. And I think it's been pretty well received. And uh, I just thought it was great. So that would be the story I've read recently that struck me. Cool. I'll look for it. And yeah, for that and for all the stories you wrote that you mentioned, I'll throw links to everything in the podcast description so people can look for it there. Great. If you had to trade places with any journalists, living or dead, and you would have their career, who would it be? Well, can I say two people? Sure, go for it. Okay, so one is uh, Peter Hessler, who I'm sure you're well aware of. Yeah, the... OG China long form yeah, writer. The, yeah, OG. He's just so good. Like he's such a good writer, and like he could write about going to the grocery store, and it would be a good article. <laughs> um, and he's kind of like you know one of the last of these kind of foreign correspondent types. Like he was in China for his uh, Peace Corps thing, and then you know was a freelancer there for a long time for the New Yorker, and then he was in Cairo, and then he was most recently back in China. I think he got kicked out. But yeah, he's just a really gifted nonfiction writer. And so I, I've always admired him. Although I personally am not super drawn to doing those kinds of stories myself. Another like classic New Yorker writer whose stories I am drawn to and would want to do myself is David Grant. He's not the OG China guy, but he's the OG like movie cinematic article guy. Oh. A lot of his pieces and books have been made into film and TV. The, uh, I mean, The Killers of the Flower Moon, his book is being in, made into a movie by Martin Scorsese. The Lost City of Z, I think it's called, was a book of his that got made into uh, a movie. And, like, you go back into his New Yorker archive and, like, man, these stories that he's done are just incredible. Like, I don't know how he found them. I don't know how he got the access that he got, but he is a really incredible narrative nonfiction writer. Uh, so I'd say those two. Yeah, those are two very good ones. And yeah, I feel like Peter Hessler loomed large for a lot of people who moved to China around the era you or I did. And he's continued to do great stuff. I mean, I hope I'm not mixing up with Osnos. But uh, well, he's very good too. So he's, yeah, Evan Osnos but is no I, was it Hessler? I think who moved back to the U.S. and he, he like wrote a story about running or something. And I yeah, was that, like, that's Hessler. That's Hessler. Yeah. And it was still great, even though it had nothing to do with anything he really had done before or since. I think. Yeah. Um, cool. The next one is kind of the the pinch me moment. What is a moment? in uh, your journalism career where you got in a situation where you're just like, I can't believe this. Pinch me. I can't believe this is my life. I've had a, I've had a couple, fortunately. 
But so the one that comes to mind is that I did this story about kidnapping survival schools that was originally assigned by Harper's, but anyway, it ended up going in both Roads and Kingdoms and Slate. So for that, I went to a course, like a kidnapping prevention and survival course in Florida, and it was run by this like pretty eccentric British former military guy who I really quite liked. And you had the kind of option to do some like mild torture uh, during this course. <laughs> and, I, and he provided a couple options of what, what you could do. But it was like totally optional. But I was like, you know, I, I started thinking, you know, if, I, I will not be doing this article justice if I don't do some of the uh, some form of torture. So we decided they would waterboard me. And he got two assistants, like just these kind of guys that he worked with. And we met in the parking lot of a closed paintball operation in like <laughs> the, the wild suburbs of Miami. And the, the three of them like pinned me down threw a towel over my face and waterboarded me, waterboarded me for a very short amount of time before I tapped out. Like it was, it's, it's pretty awful. Like if, you know, one, you're panicking, you're like hyperventilating. And then next thing you start feeling like water shooting up your nose. I was terrified because I was like, if I could tap out, that would be fine. Right. You're just getting some water on your face. But I thought, like, I don't even know these guys. Like, it, we've, we've done, we did some crazy stuff that we, like, he made us watch, like, execution videos and shit like that. Like, it was, it was really bonkers. And so I'm like, what if they just kept waterboarding me? What if they, like, make me keep going and I die in a Florida parking lot and this is the end? Of... But anyway, thank God when I tapped out, they stopped. But that was surely one of those moments where, like, I'm not sure how many people in this country have actually been waterboarded, but I'm one of the few. Yeah, wow, that's crazy. I mean, Reuters sends people to hostile environment training that involves uh, kidnapping. I haven't done that specific one, but it's definitely not that extreme by any measure. Yeah. Um, wow. Okay. And then what is your favorite film, book, TV, or other media property about journalists and why? It can be kind of tangentially about journalists, uh, fiction or nonfiction. It can be, I don't know, a memoir, basically anything that has some relationship to journalism. I would definitely say the paper. Uh, do you remember that? It was Michael Keaton was in it. Oh, no. Robert Duvall's in it. I think it's Glenn Close. Their director was a famous director, but I can't remember who it is. And it's about... Michael Keaton is uh, is an editor at this like New York tabloid, and it goes through the the course of this day. There's like some murder that they're unraveling, and like he's getting poached by the kind of New York Times, the fictional New York Times, and it's just like it's the best newsroom movie I think ever. And it was one of these movies that when I was a kid, I watched it and I was like, wow, like that's a job, like you can do that for a career. It's obviously not exactly like that in reality, but yeah, what an awesome movie. I actually, I hadn't seen it in years and then one day I was sick and in the afternoon and I just, I watched it again and it's still awesome. So I highly recommend that, the paper. That's great. Uh, yeah, nobody's talked about that one. I, I don't know if I've even heard of it, so it's good to have a new one. I'll definitely watch it. It's really great. It's, it's one of my all-time favorites. Okay, well, I, I think this conversation went great. Thanks again for coming on the podcast and for sharing all this with us. Yeah, my pleasure. 
That's our show. Thanks for listening to my conversation with Mitch Moxley, a magazine editor and freelance writer based in New York City. I'll post links to some of the things Mitch talked about in the podcast description and also on our show page, foreignpod.podbean.com. If you like the show, please subscribe to it in Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, YouTube, or wherever you get your podcasts, and give it a rating. Beyond that, it would be a huge help if you also write out a review saying what you think about the show. It helps get the podcast more attention. Follow or tweet at me on Twitter at at foreignpod. On Facebook, our page is facebook.com slash foreignpod. Above all, if you know someone who might like the podcast, please recommend it to them. The show is produced and edited by me. Our music is a track called Love Chances by Mackay Beats. There's more information on that in the podcast description and on our show page. Please look for the bonus content for my conversation with Mitch to be posted on Sunday, October 24th. Until then, I'm Jake Spring, and this is Foreign Correspondence. Correspondence.